Welcome to the Church of Pod. This podcast is about a relatively small, fundamentalist Christian movement, which I used to be a member of. It's about high-demand religion and life after it. I'm Ben, and I'm your host. Today, my guest is my friend and fellow ex-member, Gloria Fraze. Gloria has a soft heart for backsliders, and she's put in a lot of emotional hours behind the scenes with many people who are newly out of the Church of God. She may be a dark horse candidate for excommunication, but few are as worthy. She and I connected after I left the church, and we partner on Facebook to moderate the page called Church of God Discussion, where members, ex-members, and non-members can discuss the COG together. We don't have any particular topic, we're just talking. And I hit record a few minutes late, so you'll join our conversation already in progress. We're talking about current events, namely an occasion where Steve Hargrave, one of the Church of God's chief apostles, demanded hundreds of thousands of dollars from a congregation in Mexico, telling them that if he didn't get it that night, they would be considered unsaved. The church would remove their minister and lock the meeting house. And then right before Gloria and I had this conversation, a video found its way online of Steve explaining those actions to the Greenville congregation. I'll link to both of those videos in their entirety in the episode notes if you want to hear for yourself. I'll also include there another clip we reference later on in which an apostle makes a prophecy which later proves false. On top of that, Gloria and I talk about leaving fundamentalism, uh, getting acquainted with thinking for yourself. We talk about atheism and humanism. I suspect that listening in on these conversations is either way too relatable to you or extremely foreign to you. But either way, I hope they're interesting. I was trying to think about it. I always try to remember when I was there because I did some things that that I would totally accuse them of doing now and, you know, like like rebuke them for doing. Um, sure. When I was there, actually, we had a, a family in Baja and uh, the husband got in some trouble, you know, lost his salvation. And, and we went way out of our way in this investigation to pin this guy. And he was a, like a friend, like honestly one of my best friends. We, we tried hard to keep the family and ditch the guy because they lived on the mission. You know, very similar situation to what we fear they're setting up when they own people's mortgages and their businesses and all that stuff where you're a hostage, your family's hostage. And mm-hmm. you either play ball or you lose your whole life. And so we... I participated in that, um, you know, thinking I did the Lord's service. And uh, I've, I, by the way, to round out the story, I've, I've apologized to that man since, you know, I said, you know what it was like, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, that's the, the worst. you did what you had to at the time when you've apologized, so that's all you can really That's all do. you can do is apologize. And, you know, I, it was heartfelt and I'm not, not trying to excuse stuff. And, um, he wrote back and said, these are things that are never forgotten. So, you know, in that, in that sense, I'm the Steve Hargrave in that story. If, uh, you know, Steve is notorious a little bit for being on that side of breaking up a family, for pushing the father out in the case of, you know, like Adam Pamer, that's his accusation against Steve. Um, 
so I've been there. The other thing about me, not that this this interview so far is a lot about me. Um, um, I I was very much thought that Christians should give up their money. I did, you know. I thought that's what everybody was doing. I thought, um, we're all in. Why aren't you all in? You know, right? Etc. And and there's a lot of justification. And so I tried hard to put myself in that mind frame as I watched Steve. Maybe you know to catch up the audience. Maybe we'll even put in some clips. But he he demanded money from Chihuahua. Just demanded oh, it yeah. <clears throat> with well, threatening blackmail threats. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take we'll take your minister and we'll lock the building and you won't have it anymore. And you won't be considered saved. Right. And, Help. Yeah. And to quote him, um, not a little bit of money, a lot like six figures worth of money. He wanted. Didn't. Yeah, he did set six figures. Didn't I think he, he, he said, said six figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so this week, why it's back on topic is he was sort of justifying that. I think it must have leaked out to the congregation. There must be some upset about it, don't you think? It seems to be. I think that, yeah, that was my takeaway, that people are upset and are asking questions. Because he's basically saying, you don't get to have a say in this, but I'm just going to tell you anyhow. But, and then, yeah, he must be talking about the TikTok videos, because he said a lot of videos. And I couldn't think what that would be, aside from Adam Pamer's. I mean, sometimes it gets pretty frantic out in some of the pages, but definitely there's accusations that fly. That's definitely yeah. true. <laughs> so I tried to put my, my myself in as charitable a mind frame as I could with those events. And my conclusion is it's still messed up. <laughs> You're <laughs> yeah, doing it, but it's really messed cool. up. I did it. It was messed up when I did it. Did you feel guilt about it when you did it? Not when I did it. Not when I did it. That's a great question. Because when I look at the things that I now hold guilt over, particularly, yeah, with the boy that I thought I loved. Yeah. Felt like shit when I started doing it and the guilt kept on building from there. So I don't know. Like I think, but then I was also absolutely snooty and awful and sent terrible things to relatives about how they were going to hell and that kind of thing. And I really? did not feel guilty about that. So. Yeah. I think if you feel like you're doing the Lord's work, right. in this case with the boy, it was less of I knew I was doing what I said I was supposed to and more I don't know what else I can do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in a case, so what this guy in Baja, did the family end up leaving? Yeah, yeah, they did. They they left they the mission, which I'm so glad for, and I told him yeah. that I, I would feel terrible to this day. Uh, if they, I don't know if I could, how I would process that. If, if I had ruined a family like that. Oh my goodness. I know. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and so whenever I'm interacting with those, you know, censuring their behavior, I really try to remember their whole worldview. It's, it's so different. It's, it can feel so far removed from us. You know, I'm, I don't know, am I seven years out or something? And you're, how many years mm-hmm. out are you? 23 this year. That's right, because you're a 2000s split. Yeah. Um, Easy way to count back. Yeah, 23. Does it feel like a long time ago? It really does. It feels like a different world. I mean, yesterday, as I was saying about trying to make sense of that video that they have posted, it's like, is it them? Have they gone that much worse? Or is it my brain? What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's mostly my brain has changed so much. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. even if I look back to who I was, that still would have bothered me. But 
And as I said before, I don't think my brain was really wired to be in a system like this. Even when I was there, even as a teen, I had questions and things didn't make sense. And I would ask and it niggled at me, but I would try to accept the ex- explanations, I think. Oh, so and you are innately skeptical? Is that kind of what you're saying? I think so. Okay. If I look back at everything, I remember when, what did it be? Maybe, no, that would have been the last meeting. So... In 1999, going into 2000, we drove down to Mexico. That would have been my last meeting then to go to. And we stopped at Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. And the tour guide was telling us that these formations were millions of years old and it took this many years for it to drip. And I'm like, yeah, but the earth is only 6,000 years old. So how does that work? (laughs) And I remember asking my mom and it was something along the line of all the Lord has made the foolish seem wise or basically made scientists believe things but it's not actually true but we know that the earth is only six thousand years old Mm. and that didn't quite work for me i think i was trying to accept those answers but i don't know just the more or that incident when lane told me that i needed to stop emailing young men and when i said okay i'll take him off my emailing list he's like no i need you to email him to tell him that i want you to stop emailing him i'm like um can't i just stop no you need to tell him that Brother Danny told you that you need to stop emailing him. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make sense. When it just So things like that, I was pushing back. So I think given a few more years, I probably would have kind of had my fill of it. And really? Yeah. Either, I don't know if they, I don't know if they would have broken me. Or I if you'd have gotten married, like, you might've got hooked. Yeah. And then I'm trapped, married with babies. Yeah. And depending on what my husband was like. Mm-hmm he have let me have those questions would I have just let it break me depends what the marriage was like too if he was abusive or not abusive in the marriage there's just so many variables that I kind of start running that thought exercise and my blood runs cold every time and I'm just like I can't I can't I'm just glad I'm not yeah there's there's an arrow miss yeah so near miss I mean back then they were marrying young people off at 18 and I had turned 18 so I had several boys looking my way. I could tell I was popular. Okay. Especially if I had stayed after the split. Yeah. So you were, did, do you feel you were sort of collateral damage in the split, like ejected? What was your feeling when you left? Was there, was that just like terrible, terrifying? Or were you like, okay, cool. I kind of thought that was getting to be BS anyway. (laughs) No, it was terrifying. Terrifying. Traumatic. Awful. I mean, now I'm, Sorry? Sorry, but you basically grew up there. What? How old were you when you I, guys got in? I was nine. Yeah. Turning nine, we went to the Ohio camp meeting in 1991. And, yeah, that was still in the fairly early days in the movement when it was really starting to get going. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I guess my parents' intent was to have perfect children that would never rebel and have a perfect childhood and nothing would go wrong and we wouldn't have our hearts broken by dating and all this kind of Mm -hmm. thing um yeah so do you think anybody inside kind of lives that fantasy there's some nice families and stuff do you think that there are uh that it pays off at all or i do you think it's no (laughs) i don't know that anybody can no (laughs) i'm even thinking further aside from just the church of god restoration the homeschooling movement and all these where they sold that same kind of a dream Mm, okay don't know anybody that has turned out for 
I remember after I left, I got involved with a group of young women in similar, like the homeschooling circles and courtship and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so they would write their glorious courtship stories of how the Lord led them to each other or their fathers led them to whatever, that kind of thing. And there was probably a good dozen or two of these stories. And in the years since, maybe one of the, one or two of those marriages have stayed intact. The rest divorced spectacularly. Mm, and do you think that that's related to the, the purity culture? The Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What, yeah, the kind of, what about sorry? it? Probably several different things, but one is selling a dream that's really not realistic. It sells a fantasy. Just about how happy you're going to be in yeah, submission. Yeah, it's going to be perfection. And if you wait till marriage, etc., that you know it's going it, to just go yeah. easy, go smooth from there. You did it. It's going to be smooth. It's going to be perfect. You are going to have a wonderful marriage if you submit to your husband. Um, your father knows best, the Lord knows best, whichever way you take it. And because you're courting and you're not dating and you're not kissing or touching or anything, you are staying pure for each other. So it's going to be magical and wonderful. And yeah, it just led to a lot of really bad matches and being tied up with the homeschooling movement, a lot of awkward, socially awkward, uneducated young people. So, yeah, a lot of my peers have a lot of things to say about the mm. entire thing. A lot of and factors, of it. yeah. So, yeah, as far as your question about collateral damage, I think I was for sure. I don't think Lane had thought he would lose me. I was one of his favorites. I was rising up pretty high in the spiritual atmosphere at that time. I was becoming pretty spiritual. Oh. And I was popular with a lot of people. I had finally mastered testifying <laughs> to, I was able to get my voice up to the caliber and to the pitch that would excite people. Yeah. That's a good um, take on it because that is, uh, that is the opportunity for you to demonstrate your spirituality publicly. It's one of the, one of the main metrics really. Yeah. For a long time I had struggled with proper testifying and I'd be shy. I think I'm, I'm a slash between introvert and extrovert, but I don't mm. do well with public speaking. Okay. So yeah, I had a hard time getting the right thing. So something broke in the last year or two so that I was able to get it. And so I was being seen as a more spiritual young person. Yeah. I think it's really a fault in the system because the main requirement for being a leader there is not being a good leader, is not having good ideas, is not being empathetic. It's being a good preacher, which which means you know yelling and ex. Being able to string words together convincingly and being emotional about it. Because yeah. the things I said didn't even need to make sense. And I noticed that in their testimonies and even in their sermons. They don't need to make sense, but if you have the right... The cadence, the volume, yeah. <laughs> like the showmanship, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. I always felt I, I would love to study. I was a Sunday school teacher was where I found a fit because I liked talking about doctrine. I liked helping people. I liked my pastoral work and stuff. But I never felt the need to get on stage and yell, you know, (laughs) to make my point or get just like amped up for 20 minutes or anything like that. And that caps you because if you don't do that performative preaching, you just aren't eligible for the top tier leadership. You're not going to be an ordained minister because you're not ministering and ministry means preaching. And I I think it's is messed up way to choose leaders. It's incredibly messed up. And going fast forward to the years afterwards, I valued the intellectual, the calm, the thoughtful preachers. And I was drawn Mm. to a church that actually had a lot of professors and that kind of thing. So that 
it wasn't just foaming at the mouth about something. It was thoughtful, put together, cohesive sermons. Yeah. And I value that after the chaos of that, I think. I bet that's true. I bet that's true. So I think even though a part of me thought I could make the decision to come back, I think I knew I was done. Amazing how Whether fast that goes, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. I don't know if it was a conscious thought, but yeah. There's a, so, there's a kind of, I mean, the breaking of the dam is the... It's what I felt. It's what I remember hearing from, like, when we spoke to some other backsliders. And if the, like we said, if the worldview is that fragile, um, yeah. once there's a, a crack in it. And the other thing is that if you do give a little, show a little bit of doubt or a little bit of becoming outside or lack of faith in the community and stuff, the claws come out pretty fast, too. And you get on the other side of those judgments and, and, mean spirit that can be there and you kind of see like whoa this seemed legit when we did it to that guy or that family (laughs) but But these are lies about me (laughs) this isn't fair nothing wrong why is this happening yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know and then you see sort of the way that the you see behind the curtain in that case and and you you see how everyone before you that was wronged maybe maybe they were maybe they weren't as wrong they were <laughs> exactly there's just still as i try to interact with current members mm-hmm. you know you and i have tried you know yeah. we've tried um they don't see that they don't see that i no no they don't and i don't think i would have either because it's always the other person's fault and the stories they tell about the backslider they're so fantastical like they are such evil people the instant they step out mm-hmm. and i noticed that when i talked to them it's like well that was their fault they did it to themselves it's like well but did they though yeah well think about it i've used this analogy before i don't know if on the podcast or not but okay i have a buddy from high school and mm-hmm. every girl he's ever been involved with hates his guts <laughs> won't talk to him unfriends him online you know just hates him now okay and there's a long list of ladies and ex-wives what do you think about that guy don't you think he's probably an asshole <laughs> just from that no, evidence no, he's alone an innocent who's never done anything <laughs> wrong. of course he is. just that alone well, you're and so denominator yeah you're the common denominator and everyone that leaves the church is disgruntled is yep. is terrible you know, isn't worth having a relationship with. Do you think the odds, what do you think, what's the common denominator? It's really hard for them to acknowledge, and I don't think they can, because that would start that crack in the curtain. And it's interesting to hear over and over, whenever you make a world that is so rigid, like one sin breaks the world. Mm -hmm. The whole system falls apart if there's a disagreement that, that gets ugly or disagreement about a certain topic. It's such a fragile worldview. It does. And I think that's why they have to keep such tight control over totally. it. Because it's in danger of shattering over nothing. Over nothing. There's I mean, no- you could see a dinosaur bone and it, <laughs> it'll wreck your whole, it'll wreck your whole life. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. If your worldview is that narrow and that restricted and that, yeah. Inflexible. Yeah. If it does, There's- it can't bend base for any question well and that's why they can't entertain any questions or doubts because yeah they just can't well that's my whole beef and that's why i think that that uh, this mission 
to get that concession out of them is <laughs> is totally <laughs> futile because it would break the whole system if 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 they were to say we've we've been wrong I'm sorry about those things. It was wrong of me to, you know, exclude you from our community because of these dogmatic reasons. You know, I don't know. Things mm -hmm. of that nature. I think no, you're just giving the whole game away. The, yeah. The whole no, system's built on them being the one thing. Especially since they're now the voice of God and they're infallible, whatever they say. They keep doubling and down. Any, yeah. Any proclamation from them, though, that you're not saved, that, yeah. No, they can't question it. They can't look at it. Well, it's it, take take the example of um, Elizabeth Opal uh, again. We need to do some clip shows, or maybe I'll insert <laughs> some stuff because it's so stunning to hear for yourself. But there was a case where one of the apostles um, said super duper blatantly that that God was going to raise up this sick member. And if he doesn't, then God's a liar. And and just calling down curses on herself, saying, I had this vision, pro you know, I'm giving this prophecy. I am can't be wrong about it. Like, if you're not invoking your prophetic ability at that moment, it's never been done. And, yeah. and the member died. The member passed away. And they cannot acknowledge that mistake, that that woman... Sort of have, and they've said they've dealt with her, although I don't know what that means. Well, I don't know if she was punished for it. Uh, here's the thing. I think, I, I think it comes with its own punishment. I oh, just, absolutely. my heart breaks her. for her, for, I knew that, I knew that brother, I knew his wife, they were my missionaries, mm -hmm. and, and I know, I know Sister Opal, and she's a sweet woman, um, and she messed up. Because, oh, well, she didn't mess up though. She really, and so that's the thing. When I was listening to it, I actually felt like crying because I could feel, and I know her from when we were girls, and she was sincere and earnest. She really, really thought God had told her this. Absolutely. Like, you know how spiritual delusion can be that you really feel like it's going to happen. And she did 150% feel it. Obviously, she yeah. had doubts and said, Lord, if I don't, she said so, mm -hmm. happen. But then he said, well, if it doesn't, then I'm a liar. So she knew she was hearing him. So, yeah, for people to be angry at her and call her a false prophetess, I mean, yeah, so she was a false prophetess. Yeah, she's but a false but prophet. she didn't do it. She didn't do it on purpose. She was genuine in the moment. And hey. And it would have crushed her. Absolutely. I am so sure of that. But now you could say that. Well, first of all, you can't because Moses said if a person makes a prophecy and it doesn't come true, don't fear that prophet. He's a false prophet. He hasn't heard from the Lord. It doesn't right. get any clearer of a case than this. That was a false prophecy, and it means that she is not a prophet. And I hope to be able to make that case and hear their exchange about it. But when you watch that, and in fact, I was re-listening to that because of all this stuff about the Mexico money, I re-listened a little bit to Steve actually down in Mexico doing the extortion. And he brings up Sister Opal because I think people are upset about that. And he says, yeah. you know, she made a mistake. You'll remember this because I know you were upset about hearing <laughs> it. And mm -hmm. he's like, if God were to heal Brother Froze, he'd be capitulating to y'all because y'all come up and tell her, hey, he's not getting healed. Are you doing a false prophecy? You swore that you would raise him from the dead. You need to do that or you're a false prophet. And Steve said, 
it's because of attitudes like that from you all members that God probably didn't do the healing. And he's gaslighting and blaming the congregation, saying, you know, Brother Froze passed away, and it's your fault. And it is not the fault. This she was probably right when God spoke to her that night. It was true. He was going to raise her up. And then y'all came oh in goodness. and derailed the plan because of your unbelief and your demand to be what? His point was your demand to be have dis- control over the apostles, to have a, any kind of critical judgment about what it means to be a real prophet or a real apostle. And you're wrong to try to judge yeah. Sister Opal at all because she's better than you. She's got divine right. And just back the f*** off. And it was like... Oh my goodness, just the gaslighting and all of that. It just makes like you want to scream. It really does, because everybody is getting hurt in this. The people that he is calling knuckleheads for, or whatever he called them, mm-hmm. for doubting the prophets. Elizabeth, for having made this proclamation out of absolutely the sincerity of her heart, and to have... I'm sure she feels like his death is on her hands to some extent. I, I have no doubt it's one of the big traumas it's, of her life. Oh, absolutely. Not, we'll have... And if not his death, the pain that that caused to his family, to the congregation, absolutely. the fact that we're talking about it right now and blaming the church for it, and it's a huge, to me, if you ask me what's the number one proof, mm-hmm. that's it. That's the one case oh. I would make. It's locked tight. And if I was a member, and I remember I posted because I thought, oh, well, that's it. Game's over. Everybody's, mm-hmm. le- everybody's leaving. It's... <laughs> And but that's how they, they use gaslighting and fear to get them back in line with that. Exactly. But, I don't know. It's, I mean, from my vantage point now, obviously it wasn't ever going to happen. I understand how strong spiritual delusion works, but they can't and they have to still. Well, the brain always it's thinks really, it's right. You, it you, does. You can't know that you're wrong. And And it's like you said, okay. there's a. There's a mindset, you know, you've changed in in large part. I think that the church mm-hmm. has changed, the dogma has changed and stuff. But what's interesting is that every, so many people have changed with it. So many people, the only thing it takes to get some to get every single freaking saint to watch a television <laughs> is a proclamation from the pulpit. I like I, I sometimes try to put myself back into that, and it's like, what if I was still there? I would really be struggling with a lot of this. You'd think. Because this. You'd think. And, and you have to think. And it's something like, like the meeting that Steve had. They're addressing the fact that people are struggling with it. Yeah. And the, the, both of those meetings that he had were damage control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But is that enough? Because they're having a lot of the things that we're seeing now is a lot of damage control and punishing the people for asking questions and punishing people for grumbling. Can you really stuff this genie back in the bottle once people have started? You can keep them quiet for a while. You can make make them be more careful. You can break some of them, maybe. And it's compounded. And it's compounded by the internet. I know it's. Yep. I mean, my hope is that this conversation gets heard by members who struggle with it and think about it, and that's not a factor in the past. And I don't think you can. I don't think you can erase those doubts and stuff, but but that's why you're taught to ignore them. I guess so, but once that genie starts squeezing out of the bottle, 
can you really get it back in fully once you've seen? I, I don't know. So what do they do? They just tell you that you're not seeing a genie, you know, that that's some delusion. It's delusion. It's your sin. It's your lack of faith. I don't know. It's, it's, it's propaganda from Adam yes. Hamer. Um, because we're all liars. Remember? Yeah, absolutely. So none of the, but I think the fact that they're having to do this is people obviously don't think it's all lies if they're questioning. I mean, and I've there's some, audio of it, of so much of this. Yeah, that's a thing. And, and I don't think people have heard that though, right? Because maybe not. When you listen to Steve explain it away, his explanation for his Chihuahua, uh, I'm just going to call it extortion, um, yeah. was that he was there dealing with racism. That's not what <laughs> I heard no. when I listened to it. And I don't know that he would dare say that if, if he thought that the congregation had heard the tape. But the congregation had heard the tape. Do you think? That's the thing. This was a leak from inside. Do you think that it this got around and people listened? Like if you if you got an illicit, like, oh, this is Brother Steve down preaching in Chihuahua. And I mean, how would you get that? Someone would text you a file? I think so, because it was on their app. It wasn't anything that was broadcast no. to the general public. Oh, yeah. The, somebody inside. That's right. Right. It was definitely a so leak. So it will have gone around. Yeah. They will have had access to it. Somebody's heard and it you because have, somebody's upset about it. Yeah. And I think I'm trying to remember if there was actually who sent it in the first place, but I think there was active members that were listening to it and that were sending it around. I'm pretty sure. Well, even the the thing that we're talking about, the second meeting that happened this week where he was excusing the first sermon mm -hmm. is an obvious leak. That wasn't supposed to be a public event. Yeah, where? Yeah. Well, I asked where it came from. I tried to okay. I, I tried to trace it back, and I hit a dead I hit a dead end. Somebody was protecting their sources. So it was a leak. It okay. was an inside yeah. leak for sure. Yeah. I'm surprised it was videotaped though. Too. What's going on? Why? Why even do that? I don't know. And I sometimes wonder the way that they zoom in on certain people is a strategic. I mean, we get a really good read on some interesting body language. That's that the way, best but... part of watching it. <laughs> I know. Is to watch the people. It's so fascinating. <laughs> Man, that would never have been the... I remember we would kick out people who tried to videotape back in the day. That yeah. just wasn't done. Yeah, it's <laughs> totally different. But it, it, I'm beginning to be a little convinced that for the, a lot of people that are there, it doesn't matter. Because like I said, the, the only thing that really matters, I think, is, is the allegiance. That's mm -hmm. the only thing that matters. And that's what's so dangerous. Because if the apostle tells you you can't watch TV, you don't. If they tell you you can, well, now you do. And, and you just do. You, you just don't have your own conviction, your own critical thought about that. No. What, what if well, the apostle... Critical thought has long been out the window. Long been out the window. But... That's the whole problem. <laughs> yeah. Because what if what if the apostle tells you to do something naughty? Why wouldn't you? Well, it must you? not be naughty. It, it wouldn't be naughty, I think. If I, you could make a case if, that it wouldn't be naughty. If it's being sanctioned, then it's not bad, which... I mean, yeah, that opens the door to a whole lot of scary things. Yeah. But I remember feeling that way about, because, yeah, I've talked about the one instance where I flirted with a boy and felt incredible guilt over it. And this was after Lane had preached that he could tell what the state of our heart was, the state of our spirituality. That's what you're afraid of, yeah. Yeah, so I really wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to know that I was right with God. And so it was in the last two years, I think, of my being there. 
And so I would go up to him regularly, just like, Brother Danny, so how am I doing spiritually? Am I okay? Am I good with God? Mm -hmm. And he'd look at me and say, yep, all good. Your soul is well, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so when I started this, started flirting with this guy, my guilt was eating me up. And I was trying to figure out how to deal with it. And I tried to ignore him, but that didn't work well because of the circumstances that were going on at that point. And I was kind of beside myself because I'm not supposed to be talking to boys. I'm not supposed to be flirting with boys, but I kind of have to talk to him. And yet I'm sinning, aren't I? Like, I'm really not supposed to be doing this. And so while this was happening, I went to Lane and I'm like, so how is my heart? And yep, still all good. Your spirituality is good. <laughs> and he even saw me flirting with this boy and he actually joined in and joined in with the banter and had fun with us. And mm -hmm. like, when, so he, openly sees me flirting he tells me i'm good spiritually so is what i'm doing not wrong mm. and i mean obviously it's not it's teenagers flirting which is totally harmless but for that circumstance yeah so that really messed with me because the things that i thought were right and wrong were suddenly not and why was that <laughs> so i wonder if people are kind of struggling with that now yeah that's that's true that would cause a lot of dissonance if you're conscientious and I think they've been trained, especially recently, to not to not think that way. You know, don't worry about it. Yeah. If, if the leadership says you're good, you're good. Because they'll openly preach now. You know, if, if Ray lets you in at the pearly gates, you're in. So all that matters is being on Ray's good all side. All that matters <laughs> is allegiance. That's my hypothesis. Yeah. It's the only thing that matters is allegiance. Yeah. And that's so dangerous. It's opening it up to a lot of scary things. I, yeah. I don't know. So, so how did you begin to process the loss of all those rules when you're suddenly, you know, <laughs> you're left to your own volition? Yeah. It was, for me, it was a really, really slow journey at first because I still bought into the church of God is true, sin-free life. Didn't really change much. And I remember declaring even as I was leaving that I'm not going to be changing even the dress standard. That's going to be staying the same. So that's what they all say. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but as we've seen, it's not your fault because you used to blame people that would leave and you'd say, ah, well, clearly they never really had the a real conviction about dress because as soon as they didn't have to, they were in t-shirts, but Hey, <laughs> say back at you because as soon as you're allowed to watch TV or listen to Michael Jackson, mm -hmm. you're on it. You're, that's true. You're not, you're not. And it's not arguing. that I wanted to be worldly though. I didn't, I didn't care. I liked, I felt convicted that this was my conviction. This was my standard. And I don't know when that, and it was such a gradual change. I don't remember, I don't think it would have been that summer, probably. I started wearing three-quarter length sleeves, so showing a little bit of arm. And I wasn't mm -hmm. wearing it then. So I was wearing a three-quarter length sleeve blouse, a long skirt, and I was on a bike ride down country roads. And driving by another family's place, because they lived just across, just down the street from us, out in the country, and ran into two of the women who were driving by and they opened their window and stopped the car and gave me a lecture about <laughs> Gloria. You, you said you weren't going to break the standard. How could you? Like, yeah, well, but, uh, and it was traumatic. Anything. God, yeah. 
really, if I look at back at it, it was PTSD to a large extent. And then any encounter I had with him was triggering of the PTSD. I know. It's perfectly fair, I think, to use that term. My therapist used, told me that's what I'd experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And I think by the time I actually started going to therapy, I think I'd probably processed my way through most of the PTSD. But now as I'm in therapy and we still talk about it now and then and kind of go back and look at things, it's like, yeah, I like, and with all the things that I've got going on with my body, it's obviously as a result of a lot of the trauma. Mm. So I think some of those might be the symptoms of the PTSD and the mm. cortisol and everything else that happens. But mm. I don't actually have the direct PTSD triggers anymore. I've probably worked my way through most of those. So by the time I went into official therapy, it wouldn't have been outright PTSD anymore. But looking back at my reactions and just the way my blood would run cold if I saw them and my heart rate would increase and stuff. Yeah, it was definitely a PTSD reaction. Yeah, I, I personally hesitate to use that term on myself. There's people that experience so a, lot, different a lot worse things than I did. Sure, but that doesn't negate it. No, I know. And that's kind of was his point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so then, and so my family, we were still very conservative, long hair. Hair was still up in a bun, mm. long dresses, vests for the most part. And we started going to conservative churches. So in the really early days after leaving, I would spend time with people from the German Church of God. I attended there a few times and they knew my background. They knew me as a kid and they knew what I had gone through to some extent, as much as anybody can really know. And they were there to support me and to help me through probably the most agonizing days of it. Because, yeah, for the first few months after the split... I just remember having a tape in my car. Didn't have much music, wasn't since we obviously weren't allowed to listen to much. And I didn't want to listen to restoration music. So I took the German Church of God music that we still had. And I would play that in my car. And there was a few songs that I would play over and over again. And there's one that still has this visceral reaction in me. I still burst out crying every time it comes on. Because that was the one that was pretty much the most comforting thing to me. Mm. Um and I would just rewind my tape player in my car and play it over. And I would sit in my car just sobbing, probably for a good two, three months. And it was winter. This had happened in February. And yeah, probably had a nervous breakdown if I look back. Yeah. It was completely shattered. Yeah. And so the people from the German Church of God, they surrounded me. Um, I spent some time with my aunt and uncle in Edmonton. And so the people there as well. I also had coworkers who had been concerned about me knowing a bit about the Church of God restoration and what kind of a group it was. And so as they saw me exiting, they kind of surrounded me and supported me. And my way of processing was to talk, just talk endlessly. I needed to get it out. That's always been the way I've just, I don't sit on things. It just has to come out. So I would just talk about it over and over again. These people, lovely people had so much patience to listen to me and surrounded me with so much love and yeah, helped me to get through the worst of the pain. And I started plugging into the community. One thing I had, the singing in the church really was starting to wear on my voice. I've got a strong voice and I would sing loud, but I could feel my voice box starting to shred, maybe for lack of better terms. And I could feel that I was starting to do some permanent damage. So I had gone to Lane and I'd asked him if I could please take voice lessons, just that I could learn to sing better. And he's like, no, the Lord will help you. I'm like, no, but seriously, just to get some instruction to know how to use my voice. He's like, the Lord will be your voice teacher. Hmm. 
<laughs> we couldn't get anywhere with that. Interesting. So one of the first things that I did when leaving was to find a voice teacher and got connected to one in the community. And that connected me to the music community. And so she had a bunch of students my age, younger, and we became a little group of our own and we would sing together at festivals or recitals. And so I got to know normal people in those environments. And some of these are still my friends now. It's, they were some of the most influential. But as far as the church world went, I was still mistrustful of mainstream churches. So yeah, we were in the Haldeman Church. And then at that tent meeting, we met another family who were a part of Charity Christian Fellowship, which was basically the equivalent of the Church of God Restoration, in that they were restoring the Mennonite groups into something more alive, something better. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty huge movement in what, the early 2000s? Yeah, they're still pretty big. I'm pretty familiar with them too. Yeah. Yeah, they're big. They've diminished by quite a bit and they don't have the same evangelical power that they did, but they were taking in huge numbers of people at that point. And so that was exciting and that was fun. And so we started going to some of their services and traveling across the country. And and then they had a tent meeting up here in Manitoba because they were working on getting the Hutterites in. And they actually ended up scooping up a lot of the Hutterites from the colonies around. And so my family went to attend and this would have been in summer of 2001. So the year after the split. And at that point... I had been, so all the young women were head coverings and they assured me that I didn't need to wear one. It's only if I felt a personal conviction to wear one that I needed to. And where have we heard this before? But hey, why haven't you felt a personal <laughs> conviction yet? What's wrong with you? Yeah. That personal much. conviction better be coming pretty soon. And I started feeling that. I started feel at first they had been really nice to me. And then I started feeling that they were pushing me out. And so I was st already starting to feel this antsiness and I was getting... So they were really know, concerned right? about you not wearing a head covering? Like, that became they were. an issue. And I wasn't wearing their style of dress. I was maybe more modest than them because it was still pretty close to Church of God Restoration dress. What is but with the head people? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Why, why does that matter? <laughs> but it does matter doing? to them. <laughs> it's like the most important thing to them. And other people have a different most important thing. Like, it's speaking in tongues. It's, but it's something little and inconsequential. Yes. And another thing that I'm not mentioning here is that I'm, what, 19 at this point? And I thought I was going to be married by 18. So yeah, you're an old when, maid. <laughs> really am. When the split happened, there basically all my life's dreams and hopes went up to smoke. The guy, yeah. guys that I thought might want to marry me, that was done. So now where was I going to find a godly, spiritual young man like this again <laughs> to marry? Because that was still what I wanted. I wanted somebody who was godly and spiritual and talks in deep religious tones type of thing. Except that all the young men that I ran into were weird. and <laughs> The religious guys? So Yes. Yeah. So not the young so the young men that I was meeting through the music community, I was starting to get a different idea. And they were also religious, but mainstream religious, but they were lovely. And I'm like, wait, this is the kind of guy that I want. But they're not overtly spiritual yet they're so much better than any of the other guys I've met up to this point. So I kind of had that bit of warfare going there. But in the meantime, still thinking I need to marry a spiritual young man. And so when we were going to charity, that was kind of a consideration and so I'm like, well, if I want to get married, I probably have to put on the head covering, right? And if I want to become this good submissive wife, I'm going to have to. So I was trying to process this all. And mm -hmm. at the same time, my brain is starting to change more and more and move away. 
And so we sat through a few days of that meeting and the girls were making it very obvious that I was on the outside, that they didn't want to hang around with me. I remember feeling shunned by them and went to the, and their services were way too much like Church of God Restoration. And that was starting to trigger me, the singing, the everything, even the sermons. And then the final straw was the baptism that we went to. And as the leader was baptizing people, he said, will you renounce Babylon in the world and take triggered, a stand triggered. with the true church? And I'm like, triggered. that's it. I'm done. <laughs> that was just like the trigger of all triggers. <laughs> and so this is out in the middle of nowhere, Manitoba. My parents wanted to stay for the evening. I am on the verge of a panic attack. I'm like, I can't, I can't stay. I can't, I cannot. I am going to walk away from God if I, I can't just trigger to that height. Yeah, it was the panic that I felt was quite something else. And so finally my parents did listen to me. And I remember the song service was starting. It was going and then I just needed to get away. And we started the van and drove home. And that was the changing point for me. Up till that point, I had been going along with my parents. I was following them where they went. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with conservative religion. This is it. And so the next day I went to a store in Steinbeck, a clothing store, and I bought two dresses that had short sleeves and slits. And I felt so evil and worldly, <laughs> like I was breaking some massive something. When I think back at those dresses, they were still very conservative and very sure. plain, but they were nice and they had slits. And that was a big thing for me. And I started looking at the different churches in Steinbeck. I'm like, it's time to start mainstream church shopping now. And what was I at this point? 20? Yeah, would have been around that. And I was mistrustful of people. I was mis I didn't want to be talked into something because I knew how we were with the love bombing and how we would surround people who came to visit and try to convince them that way. And I didn't want anything to do with that. I wanted to make my own decision based on the service itself and the gut feeling I got from that. So I would make a point of arriving at a church service a few minutes after it started, sneaking in, sitting in the back, and then sneaking out a few minutes before it ended. So nobody had the chance to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And so I did this for, I don't know, maybe a few months. I don't think it was that long. And then there was a big evangelical church in Steinbeck that I decided to visit. And I did the same thing, sneaked in, sat kind of in the back sheltered they had like a low overhang ceiling there so it kind of felt like it was in a cocoon and sat there and listened to the service and they had a choir that sang and the choir was beautiful and the minister who got up was thoughtful and quiet and intelligent and made coherent points and wasn't ranting and raving and something and I I cannot remember the song that they sang. I don't know if it was Come Thou Font of Every Blessing or Great is Thy Faithfulness. It was one of those songs that had a really Martin Luther old hymns. It was, but it also had significant meaning for me. So the fact that they sang that really said something to me. Mm. And something in me just said, yeah, this is home. This is it. So I stopped shopping around and I started attending this church, but I still kept on doing the same thing. First of all, I didn't trust ministers, didn't want anything to do with ministers, didn't want anybody to ever tell me what to do again. Um, and I still didn't trust people. So, yeah, I would sneak in late, sneak out early. But I was starting to feel more and more comfortable. And just hearing the choir made me really nostalgic. I wanted to be involved. I wanted to sing. I wanted something as coherent and together as a choir. And then one Sunday morning, there was a woman I had known from when I was still in elementary school. 
and she had seen me there, I guess. And over the years, she had seen me in the community and she kept an interest in me. And so she, I guess, had noticed my dash in and out. So that Sunday morning, as I tried to dash out, she was there waiting for me and she caught me and just welcomed me and asked if she could plug me in with some of the other young adults in the church and that kind of thing. So she connected me with a few people and I started letting down my guard and feeling more at home, um, connected with the, uh, the young adult group. And then they had a uh, women's tea, a newcomer women's tea where a bunch of women would go to the, one of the pastor's houses and get to know each other, get to know some of the pastors. And nice. turned out actually my mother-in-law was one of the pastors of that church. And so she was there. Future mother-in-law. Future mother-in-law. Yes. My now, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and at that point also, yeah, I have to backtrack a little bit here. Um, it was, I think in March of that year, the, there was a local college and they would always hold their spring concert at this church building. And so I saw that in the program and decided to attend. And just seeing this choir of young adults my age, and they were obviously having so much fun. And it was, yeah, I was sitting there crying because it was something I wanted so much, but didn't think it was something I could have because I was working a full-time job. And how could I give that up to go to college? And yet something happened there that twigged something in me. And so I think it was less than a month later, I was actually at the college getting a tour and found out that the college choir was going to be going to Europe in the next school year, which was something I really wanted to do. So got the tour and ended up enrolling. And yeah, so that was all a part of that church. And meanwhile, I also got involved with the church choir and I would have been in those fairly early days and I was so shy and insecure and quiet. And I've talked to people since who remember me being this little shy wilting flower sitting there. That, and that stage is so hard because you, you don't you, fit in. Anything. You don't fit in at all. And you are no. unsure of so much, so much of your personality and unsure of, like you said, you didn't trust people and you're not even sure what you're there for. I still struggle with that like church-wise, community-wise, sometimes like mm -hmm. I, there's something in me that wants this. Like I like when you sing, you know, A Mighty Fortress like you did. Mm -hmm. But I also don't want some parts of this that's on offer or that's required. And it's hard for me to sort that out and articulate it, much less and that's find seven it. Years. Yeah. And then there's things it's, that you yeah. do want, like going to college, that you're conflicted about that too, you know? Whether that's or not also that's the, right or. Mm -hmm. It's because you don't know who you are even at mm -hmm. that point at all. You haven't been allowed to be your own person, develop your own person. Yes. And I, I still sometimes wonder at how people must have seen me and how they knew how to respond to me because it was a lot of older people in the church choir, but the way that they surrounded me and they loved me and they just took me in and made sure that I knew I was welcomed and wanted and, he just yeah poured so much love into me in those early days That's and i good. always start crying when i talk about this because it's just still such an emotional thing to me um yeah so then i started my classes there started so the first year you always had to take a class in old testament and new testament and then i think critical thinking was one of my first yeah it was one of my first courses oh, and new religious movement that'd be good for you oh and new religious yeah. movements. oh yeah you must have learned a ton 
I got hit with all the hard hitters pretty much right away. Mm, um, did you? So that was a real flood of realizations for you. That semester. It was. And oh. that triggered my, what I call faith crisis slash deconstruction. No kidding. Um, what specifically, remember, what, what were some of the things that, that started that nailed that? you? Well, first of all, the Old Testament professor is talking about these different stories and he's alluding to the fact that they might just be stories or parables and scholars disagree as to whether this person existed and that kind of thing. And I'm like, just normal, wait a minute, the normal critical scholarship. Absolutely. Yeah. But completely foreign to me yep. because for me, the Bible was exactly what it said. And so I think that was the first tug on the string for me. I'm it, like, it's a great, I, th I think it's a great Avenue. In fact, I just read this book. I've been thinking about doing maybe a book report for the podcast, but it's, I was, I was kind of thinking about this and thinking about talking on it on here and stuff and thinking about maybe people that are freshly out hearing about it and, and how much uh, it's so it's so helpful and interesting to me to to learn about critical Bible scholarship because it's reasoned, you know, it's just based mm -hmm. on artifacts or internal evidence in the text. And it's like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. That's really neat. You can kind of figure that out and figure that out, and then it's like, whoa! But the the, that the pulls the, on strings. It pulls on strings because, like you said, especially if you're a real dogmatic fundamentalist, and if you think mm -hmm. the guy that wrote Luke, the Gospel of Luke was a real eyewitness, and so was John. You know, well, Luke they wouldn't think was, but let's yeah. say let's say let's say that's Matthew and John, and mm -hmm. um, it's tough. There's tough to square some of that stuff, and. Um, I think it's kind of a an interesting, maybe gentle way, and maybe I'm giving away my ruse, but to introduce people <laughs> like you were, and it was a factor for me too because I, um, you are you're studying the Bible, you know, mm -hmm. it's interesting, it's stuff you're already into, and it's not necessarily critical, it's sort of agnostic, it's sort of disinterested, but 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 you do begin to be willing to look at those texts in a critical way. And that's that's all it takes, and that's all. It really need, does. Yeah. That's all you need to ask of somebody. I think, like, hey, or, just to be willing to look at it. Just be willing to be wrong. Just to be willing to be yeah. wrong, and and really give it its fair shake. Think about whether or not the things that church you happen to be born in is one hundred percent right about absolutely everything. <laughs> is that too much to ask? <laughs> you know, for a little no, bit it's of not, doubt. But it's scary. And I think it's so scary and yeah. it's okay to do it. Yeah. You're going to be okay. It's You're going terrible. to be okay. Right. That's why I think That's... these stories are so valuable because you hear <laughs> someone from the coming from where I came from going through what I'm going through. I mean, that, that first year, two years is hell. It's oh, pretty scary. It's and it does hell get better. Word, yeah, it does. And that's so kind better. of what I try to tell people now. I'm like, this is hard. It's going to be hard for a while. Yeah. But there is light at the end of this. Just, yeah, surround yourself. And my biggest thing, too, is surround yourself with community. Because when I look at mm -hmm. my biggest factor of mm -hmm. success, it was the people I surrounded myself with. Yeah, absolutely. There. Absolutely. And especially with college. So I already had the foundation of the church there that had my back essentially but then I also started building those relationships in college with my friends and professors and different people and so the way I look at it is I built myself a safe foundation a safe nest if you will for me to start picking up things yeah that's that's great that's a great way to do it and and it and it's 
like we said, I think it would be great advice for someone who is just coming out to put that stuff on the back burner where it belongs. Yeah. Um, because it's interesting too, to hear your, you do go through that sort of evolution. You're different than me. I, I sort of jumped off the cliff you'll, <laughs> you you'll remember, <laughs> into atheism. Um, and, and I've even obviously changed, uh, evolved a little bit from where I initially kind of got spewed onto the land. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think in, you had to backtrack in some of those ways, right? And yeah. Yeah. Because I skipped a lot of the steps. I'm doing it backwards from you. Like you did it so fast, but yeah, like it will catch up with you. You have to process it. You got to process that stuff. But, um, there's a, there's this weird kind of ticking clock because you think, well, what if I die? You know? Right. And I, and I don't, <laughs> I don't have an allegiance. I don't have anyone. <laughs> I don't have It'll an advocate. Okay, I promise. <laughs> yeah, which is probably we're probably not the two most comforting characters to hear that from because you know we both <laughs> do land in the unbelief camp, and that's what people are most afraid of. I think yeah. if, if you talk to people that are still in, like, where am I going to go? Am I going to end up like you? I don't. I would never want to be an atheist. Uh, this nihilistic, unbelievable, unbelieving, hopeless, you know, col- <laughs> collection of matter. <laughs> yeah. And I get it. I had the same fear. I definitely didn't. And even I'll talk about that as we get further on the deconstruction, but I definitely didn't want to leave the faith. That was probably one of my biggest fears too. And yet on this side of it, I'm like, why was I so afraid? What was so terrifying? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's easy to say from here and maybe we are as deluded as we were talking about people before the brain always thinks it's right. But, um, there I didn't I don't find anything to fear on this side of that journey no no, I feared coming up to it but it's 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 scary for a long time when the split happened and when I was sitting in my car sobbing my eyes out I felt like my entire everything was falling apart and breaking apart and I would feel this presence come and just kind of surround me like with a blanket or with a hug and just let me know that I was going to be okay. And at the time, I'm like, well, that was God. That was God coming to comfort me and letting me know that I would be okay. And so even as I started asking questions and picking holes and finding that none of this really made sense, I'm like, but there was still that presence. How do I explain that presence away? And that was the last thing I held on to. Oh, really? That there must be a God. There must be a something because there was something that was tangibly putting its arms around me and holding me together in those darkest of times. Mm-hmm. So for me, I mean, now that I look back, kind of at the end of the journey, I was a Christian agnostic. I didn't really believe, but I chose to believe and I okay, liked yeah. the community. So, yeah. And I was still holding on to, so there is still that God figure. There is still that something that was there for me in those darkest of those days. Yeah. What do you, what do you call that now? It was me, my own strength, because I know when I went through therapy and this was already after I had fully deconstructed, I went to see a psychologist and worked through the trauma and started picking at some of those threads and gosh, that was traumatic. (laughs) Again, just months of crying, pretty much. I would, my body would just start sobbing and I couldn't even tell you why, but it was just like my body took over and just had to get it out. And as I'm sitting there with that trauma and pain, I felt that same presence come and surround me, except now I no longer believe in a God. I no longer believe in the supernatural. 
and I started realizing that it's my own inner strength that had carried me through in the first place that had, and that was comforting the traumatized child or the traumatized whatever that was, that the pain was coming out. Has that changed how you interact with that force? We'll call it that. Like, does it make it less comforting to you if that feeling happens to you now and you're like, yeah, that's just me. Is it nicer to think that it's some heavenly father? No. It's a, it's a really good question, actually. But no, I don't think that changes it. I mean, if I need external comfort, I have my husband, I have friends that I can turn to for that. But I think knowing that I'm strong enough to get myself through these moments of trauma to or whatever pain or whatever is happening, that's comforting in its own way. Do you ever wish there was a God? No. No? I don't think that would change anything for me, honestly. It depends, yeah, on, it depends on what kind of God it is, I guess. I guess. Maybe like a benevolent force in the world. I mean, I kind of like playing with the idea of karma or that kind of thing, of there being some greater force, but it's some neither kind of, here nor there, really. Yeah, like like I, some kind of indiscriminate universal, Yeah. something objective. Pretty much, but it's, I don't know. It's hard to describe. So are you a, are you a total materialist? Materialist as in? Like you think that you are just um, energy and matter. Like a collection of cells and consciousness is just electrons firing. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I am, yeah. I don't, I mean, my purpose is now in this world that I live in and to leave memories behind in the people I love. But I don't feel like I need to have some greater overarching celestial purpose. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with this being it as such i guess yeah it, it almost makes it a little more special it does it's not i'm not living my life for another a secondary world this is the one that i've got yeah yeah, it's, yeah. it always confuses me when people say that atheists have no hope nothing to live for and no meaning it's like yeah but i see christians who have no hope in this life who are just waiting for heaven great point yeah you're <laughs> you're not here now um, enjoying what's happening you're you're wishing you were somewhere else and you're wishing this would end. Exactly. And and you see this as a place where you're being tried and suffering and stuff. And and you're willing to put up with that to get to the next thing. And and if yeah, that's a that's shell all, game. This is the means to an end. That's all that this, this is. The means to an end. And if it turns when out I that hear- is a shell game, then you've really wasted a lot. Wasted all the the only thing because i mean even as much as christians say that we have the promise of heaven and it's a guarantee and we know it's do we really though like has anybody actually fully reported back aside from near-death experiences and that kind of thing do we know with great certainty that there is another world we don't we're taking it by faith if you believe it but if it is a shell game and it's not and you've spent your life in this veil of tears suffering through what a miserable marriage or Sure. A horrible, a horrible mm-hmm. church where you can barely keep your head above water or anything. Yeah. You've wasted the only guarantee you had. It's kind of the opposite of Pascal's wager, which is, mm-hmm. you know, if you're wrong, let's say you're an atheist and you're wrong, then you've lost an eternal, an eternal afterlife. Um, and yeah. It, yeah, both, both, both are true. The hard part about Pascal's wager is sometimes the, um, the requirements are so narrow to get into that heaven. 
and, and there's so many. Which heaven there's is so it? many gods. Which so many. god are you placating? <laughs> I mean, even if you wanted to admit that, yeah, okay, I want to make my best statistically, my best shot. Um, I wouldn't know where to advise you to go. No, because there's so many, and everybody thinks they're right. And I remember at towards the end, as I was coming to the end of it all, and looking at that, and it's like, okay, so yeah, the Pascal's because a lot of evangelicals love using Pascal's wager. That's mm-hmm. their favorite thing. It's like, okay, so sure, but also if he is a just and a loving God, he knows that I have done everything I can. I went into this quest to search for him to find the truth right. to exactly. do the best I. And he sees this. He knows the intent of my heart. He knows that the intent of my heart was to do the right thing, to follow him, to be a good person, to do all this. And yet he wouldn't let me find him with all my questions, all my doubts. He should have been there. He should have let me find him. If he can't see my intent and my effort and sends me to hell anyhow, do I really want to be in a heaven with that kind of a God in the first place? And that was kind of the thing. I'm like, if there is a just God, he right. knows I tried my be best. Okay. Yeah. Well, probably you'd say the same. I can't imagine anyone saying any differently, but you know, if there was some demonstration of a deity, I would be open to that and yeah. learning about and relating to whatever kind of being it is, you know? Absolutely. If there's evidence, it's a tough one. And I used to debate it a whole lot more. I don't really as much anymore. Yeah, you, you. that seems to be true, too. I think a lot of people go through a phase of when it's new and it's exciting. And new can mm-hmm. be like, you know, for me, it was five years plus. And um, not to say that it, it's not something that someone can't be lifelong interested in, skepticism and stuff. But speaking for myself, you go, I went through a phase where I was militant about it mm-hmm. um loud about it just like you do i think we you, all do it's yeah. a part of it it's exciting because it's really interesting and it's and you and you feel so bad for yourself i think um on the other side of of belief because i don't know like do you think if you had access to your 19 year old self you could talk yourself out of it no no i think no i, I had to go through I, the journey yeah you think you I kind of think I. I think I would have been horrified by me now. Absolutely. (laughs) I wonder if that's true. Probably crossing myself and get me behind me, Satan. I know. (laughs) Another thing, though, also when I was starting to head into the deconstruction phase, which it terrified me once I realized what I was doing, because I never ever thought I would question my faith, that I would question God. But I remember reasoning to myself that I'm like, but if God is true, if he is as real as he says he is, if faith is as real and as solid as it's claimed to be, then he should be able to handle any questions that I throw his way, no matter how hard, yep, no yep, matter yep, yep. how anything. He should be able to stand up to them because if he is God, that means he's um, he's omniscient, he's everything. And so anything I should throw against him, yeah, he should be able to take. And my faith should be able to withstand this if my faith is real. And if my faith can't withstand this, do I really want to be following a faith like this? And that mm-hmm. was a hard one to say. Yeah, but I could. for me, because it was following that intellectually honest path, and like I'm gonna have, if it doesn't withstand it, then that's that. Yeah, totally. I put it this way to myself, and it was my mantra for about a year: was it's okay to believe whatever's true. Mm-hmm. It has to be before a god or be. whatever. And so, if you're investigating something and you're 
the answer might be scary that the world isn't 6,000 years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, if the world isn't 6,000 years old, it's okay to believe that. Yeah. If it is 6,000 years old, well, your investigation should turn that up, right? Exactly. Then if it's really as sure as they say it is, then the answers will back it up. Yeah, and so there shouldn't be any hardship to, you know, going to the library or getting on the internet or reading books and stuff like that. No. No, if what you believe is really so strong, which is why it always confuses. I mean, it doesn't confuse me because I know we're pulling the strings leads now. But if you really think that your belief is so strong and so real, why don't you act more like it? Why do you get so upset at people who challenge or question anything? Mm, why do you why do you cry when you're corrected? You know, why don't you welcome mm-hmm. this? Um, I, I think Henry David Thoreau, he's talking about the government in this sense, but I've thought of it as the church too. He says, why does it always excommunicate Copernicus and crucify Christ and call Washington and Franklin rebels? These people that are that are there to better the system by being critical of it. So the church, for example, it, any person, if you didn't have people in your life that told you your faults, that were willing to tell you when you're being kind of a dick or when the joke you told wasn't funny or whatever, you know, you've taken a thousand little social cues that teach you about yourself and your behavior. And if you didn't have that feedback, you wouldn't be increasingly healthy or right and correcting your behavior. And I think that the church of God lacks that mechanism because you're not allowed to be critical of leadership or of But they doctrine. can be critical of you. Heck They're yeah. the ones that come down. Right. They can be critical well, of you. That's <laughs> so you but it doesn't go both ways. Well sometimes which... I I sometimes miss that culture because I benefited from that. I was constantly you know at my rung in the ladder getting feedback, being corrected, you know, I was being mentored by Danny Lane and he was a hard ass. And um, I benefited a lot from that. I think character wise and discipline wise. But the brutalization like that. that happens worth with more than not. Cause I carried so much shame and guilt for most of my young adult life too. That comes, that's kind of, if you take sensitive, really sensitive people totally. and do that to them, then because yeah. yeah, I poured myself, I was sensitive. I was tender, wanted to do everything I wanted to follow the standard 110%. So if you told me to jump there, I would jump there and try to get a little bit higher just to make sure I did it. And for somebody like that, it's impossible. Totally. It's, and, it's not a good system. I was an adult. I was a full grown man. I was ready to roll up my sleeves and, you know, I, I was, I was, I could take a punch if, if spiritually, you know, hmm. I wasn't a little kid. Even though after years of that, that gets old too. You get worn down after a while. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy and I get worn out just sometimes listening into the preaching because that's all it is, is <laughs> it's, it's like, it's tearing them down. And sometimes, you know, I need, I, I, I need, people are, people are various and, and, and it's so nice to have choice. Yep. To have choice of, of what you want to do, who you want to be, the influences you want to have, the people you want to surround yourself with. And if you have to go sit, choices are yours. pardon me? Consequences of your choices are yours to take. No. Sure. Yeah. That's the best way to learn. They- Mm-hmm. But yeah. there, none of that is possible there. You've got it prescribed what you're going to be. Yes. 
And, and if it doesn't fit you, because you know what? People don't all fit into the same suit, literally yeah. or emotionally or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the rules don't work for everybody all the time. And it, and Just, the stricter they get, the less they work, it seems. Well, yeah, the, the fewer people they fit. I mean, we grew up in a culture that was designed for Daniel W. Lane. Yeah. <laughs> that was the religion he liked and the clothes that he liked and, you know, the, the way he interpreted the Bible. Yeah. And yeah. there's, I've said this before too, but there's medicine for you that's poison for me. Mm-hmm. Do, you ever, do you ever turn your skepticism on your skepticism, do you ever be like, you know, I've thought I was so right before and I look at all these other people that think they're so right and I know they're wrong and they're so silly. And then do you ever say, well, I'm probably equally as silly, equally as wrong in so many things? Yeah, I'm constantly turning it on myself. I'm constantly evaluating everything I think or believe and cross-checking it with what others believe and mm-hmm. weighing the value of their arguments. Yeah, I've probably evolved and changed over the years, but I don't think I've ever been completely dogmatic that I believe this and that's it, period. It's kind of following science or following evidence as it comes, following society as we learn more things. Even when it comes to things like social justice and racism, you know, yeah, always good evolve. Point. You always got you're always evolving, always learning. Well, and the one thing that was a big part of my deconstruction, too, was the attitude around LGBTQ, Mm. which facing that in what would have been 2002, 2003. Okay. Still early stages. Or it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so for me as a fundamentalist, where anything I'd ever heard about homosexuals was that they are dirty, gross animals who basically don't deserve to live. We never really obsessed about it that much in my day, but that was the general attitude around it. Like just, ew. Yeah. And I didn't give it much thought beyond that. And so, yeah, I would have still, before my full-fledged faith crisis even hit, but there was a young man I had got to know in the college choir and he was really popular with all the girls. He was good looking and funny and charming and everybody. <laughs> well-dressed and well-spoken. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Well-groomed. <laughs> just a beautiful tenor voice like yeah he could melt anybody's heart and i remember i got to know him fairly early on and that would my first year was his last year and he ended up graduating and i stayed in touch with him and all of a sudden i started hearing that he had come out as gay and so for me that was a complete out of the blue i had no idea my gaydar was non-existent at that point and I didn't know anything about it and being a Christian college in southeastern Manitoba people reacted predictably and he got so much hate mail and people Mm, were angry at him and excluded him it was brutal and I just remember feeling even at that point that this isn't right so all that I've known about homosexuals is that they're gross and evil but this guy is my friend yeah Yeah, he's a wonderful young man so what Mm -hmm. changed between then and now that has made him such a horrible person. So I couldn't accept that. So I started looking into it. I couldn't find evidence of a cure. Cure. Because for me, a cure has to be that you're no longer attracted to men, that you're now attracted to women. And it wasn't Mm. that. And so I think even then I realized that that was inhumane and cruel to expect that. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, this freshly out of fundamentalism young woman became an ally for LGBTQ because, mm. yeah, it's cruel to expect that they don't get to love, that they have to be with people that they're not attracted to. Yeah. And for why? Because I was, even in the church, I spoke to, I was speaking to Brother Pat O'Shea Sr. about this. Why is that a sin? All the other sins made sense, most of the other sins, because mm-hmm. for me, sin, sin is hurtful. That's why it's a sin. It's why God yeah. told us not to kill, because that causes suffering in the world. It's like, if it's not hurting anyone, and if the prevention of it is hurting, it's like prohibition, isn't it? Isn't the prevention yeah. worse than the disease? Absolutely. And when I see the amount of lives that are destroyed by forcing gay people to marry somebody of the opposite sex, it's yeah. just, hurt just stacks up. Yeah. And, and, and how beautiful, what a, what a neat time to live in because you can see such beautiful families developing mm-hmm. without the stigma. Um, I know. Without the stigma, without having to hide themselves. Yeah. And it's just like having... a normal family. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. Which, yeah, I, and I think once I started investigating, because for me, it had never been a personal thing of ew, gross. It was just that's what I had always been told. Yeah. So for, yeah, when I started looking at it, it just. And so we I know somebody. Know. I knew a buddy in high school that was pretty cool. sure was gay. Um, one time, one time in class, we said something like, oh, man, that's gay. You know, that's when I grew up was we would say that. Um, she says, oh, man, that's gay. And John goes, choose another word, please. And Oh. And I go that's retarded and he goes much better (laughs) (laughs) like okay john i see you i see you in your scarf (laughs) Um, but you know he didn't have a crush on me i didn't get aids from that interaction just all these things even in the 2000s that you are coming out afraid of that you're afraid of um they're just not important well, and my friend now has a son and they know a different family member didn't want my friend holding their kid because wow. he could be contagious. Hmm. Like contagious of what? It None of these arguments made sense to me. And I, I picked them all because, of course, this is the evangelical Christian world in the early 2000s. So all the arguments were there against why it's wrong. And none of them made sense to me because I held them all up and I looked at them and no, they didn't work. And again, I had a friend to look at and it's like, no, I can't hurt him. I can't turn on him because of who he is and who he loves and who he's attracted to. I've never heard a good religious argument for it. It's, it seems to me just to be God thinks it's gross. Pretty much. And I think it's the being faced. If it hadn't been for him being there in that juncture of my life, I don't know if I would have investigated in the same way or yeah. And Chad has actually told me that at one point I even took him on because I think, Oh, he had made some argument about, well, do they have to be married? Can't they just have civil unions? And mm. I think I tore him into shreds over that one. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have much patience and I became, so the college itself was still anti-gay and you weren't sure you weren't even allowed to have sex. If you were a student, basically yep. like extramarital sex. Yeah. And they were still, they've loosened up on a lot, but you being living the lifestyle of homosexuality was still wrong and you couldn't. And in my years and in the years following, there was several gay students that kind of put pressure on that. So I think Mm. that's kind of, but I know with my friend, because he, we often had alumni events that alumni would be called back to sing at. 
and my music professors were actually really supportive and my one my music theory professor actually when he found out that I was still in touch with a friend he's like I'm glad you're still talking to him. I'm glad you're his friend. I support him. I'm behind him 100%. Even though professors were supposed to sign these agreements of whatever, but he had his opinions. So both my music professors, so they invited the friend to come and sing and they were, the choir professor was given a lot of grief by the board and others for daring to invite an openly gay young man to come and sing. But he's like, others are sleeping outside of marriage and we're allowed to invite them. So why not him? Yeah. You know, it's akin probably um, to leaving the church and what we went through. You become an outsider suddenly because of something that you are or believe or do, and you get ostracized from the community. And maybe that's why I felt so strongly. Yeah, that it could work, yeah. That it you really sympathize with, with those. Yeah, with, with the, the being outcast. Cast outs, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... But yeah, and otherwise, though, with college, uh, the whole critical thinking, teaching me the flawed arguments, which we used every single one of them in the church. Like <laughs> like fallacies and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Logical fallacies. Yeah, all the logical fallacies. It's like, yeah, we use this. Yeah. Right. That's pretty much all they do. And so, yeah. That's another kind of- another panel show I would love to have is I'd love to go over fallacies. We should do this uh-huh. soon. And again, <laughs> um, invitation is always out so the church knows and everybody knows i invite I, I will invite and i do invite church members into these conversations you know wouldn't it be interesting to do logical fallacies with a couple ministers and and everybody takes a few and we go over them and we learn about them and we and you know we don't even have to talk about doctrine and stuff but just to mm-hmm. get them out there and known and say these are the kind of the rules of engagement because what's really cool mm-hmm. about logic and and that kind of thinking is the purpose of that kind of thinking, logical and scientific thinking, is to reduce your biases. We've said the brain always thinks it's right. Uh, how do you determine if you're wrong about something? That's mm-hmm. how. What you is, you yes. go through these processes to eliminate your biases, your judgments, and, and let things build by the rules. Mm-hmm. And, and see if you hold up. And, and that has resulted in all of the magic of the modern age. Every yeah. one, I mean, it just works so freaking well. It almost works extremely too well. Um, and that, you know, that relates to our conversation about atheism it, because it makes so much sense and it works so good. You're tempted to think that's the only thing you need in your life. You know, it's the only, that's the only tool I need to operate my existence. And, and it's not. You know, you can't have no. a good marriage by avoiding logical fallacies. But you can probably no, discover don't. the age of the earth. Um, you know, <laughs> it is good for what it's good for. It is. It's a really useful tool, but there's so much more to life than just that, too. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's probably where, for me, as far as atheism and stuff, where I've maybe backed off a little bit because I'm, I realized that I, I was thinking that is... The be all end all. That's the be all. That's the tool that's, that's the powerful tool that makes sense. That avoids the mistakes I made in the in my twenties. You know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have gotten into this mess, if I had had some of these tools or employed them better. Right. Um, but if I, there's this great, it's, he's a Hindu guy, Sadguru, and and he has this great analogy that the brain is like a scalpel, like a knife, 
And that's a great tool. But you can't use that on everything. You can't get to know your friend with a knife by vivisecting them. And, you know, um, you've got to acknowledge that there's more than just that happening. Um, Which is, I think, why I prefer to identify as a humanist, though, too, rather than just an atheist. Because atheist describes what I don't believe. Yeah. But humanism is basically my school of belief as such, maybe. Yeah, the, that's what informs your morals world. and your decision. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what do you mean by humanism? I was going, I was trying to pull up a good definition of this. I don't know. Should we? Take your time. I've got an, I've got an edit <laughs> button. I can clip out the silences. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on these. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, it's looking at just an article on it. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life based on a profound respect for human dignity and the conviction that human beings are ultimately accountable to themselves and to society for their actions. It is a secular worldview that affirms our ability and responsibility to live, to lead ethical and meaningful lives. Many people are humanists without even knowing it. Humanists are motivated by ethics, compassion, and fairness, and guided by reason and scientific inquiry. We are inspired by history, art, music, literature, and the beauty of the natural world. Sounds, um, sounds pretty good. Yeah, so it's... So a person could be a, a Christian humanist. Humanism, yeah. you think, really just Absolutely. means you're, you're prioritizing the well-being of humans. Of humans, above doctrines or dogma or that kind of thing. Okay, and your goal, yeah. in, your, goal in your actions is to maximize human well-being. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I base my moral platform as such on okay. is to maximize the well-being of those around me, to minimize the amount of harm that is caused by both me and others. Right. And yeah, pretty much that's reducing harm, increasing good could so, be pretty much the summary of it. Yeah. So when you look and at something like homosexuality or political questions, mm-hmm. you're doing the the utilitarian calculus. Yeah. How does this harm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with homosexuality, it will harm to deprive them. It doesn't cause harm to allow them to love who they love, who they're attracted to. With political, yeah, that's where my political viewpoint is also built around, is in what causes the minimum amount of harm or does the greatest amount of good for people. Yeah. Um seems to me to yeah. be the, the most convincing lever as well. And I think that, that there's a biblical case for that. In fact, that's what I believed when I was a Bible believer that Jesus taught. Because when he talks about love, he mm-hmm. says love does no harm to the neighbor. Um, love is the fulfillment of the law for that reason. Uh, and, he, and he always talks about it's this kind of benevolence, loving your neighbor and look, seem, seeking what's best for them selflessly. And when he Even talks about... Even if they about, might agree with us. Yeah, even if they're a Samaritan, you yeah. know, yeah. no matter what they are, that's not my concern. Whether they're yeah. inside my group or outside my group, my concern is to do, to do them no harm, to do what's best for them, even at my own sacrifice. Even if it means getting on a cross, I'm willing to sacrifice. Well, not to, excessively, to though, either. Not excessively. <laughs> well, this is the thing. This, if you if you take this philosophy to right. the... to turn it up to 12, the extreme. you know, it, uh, one, one example I've heard is if the, if a crowd of Romans is ecstatically happy with a Christian getting eaten by a lion, you know, is that worth it? It's causing so much joy in the world. 
Um, <laughs> but no, you can't. It's still not ethical to do to purposely cause harm to somebody. It seems the it's pe- people have rights. Is is yeah. There's some balance there between utilitarianism, which is sort of seeking the best good for everybody. But you can't still like innately. We feel like people have rights to like bodily autonomy we, and things that. I'm going to say a pretty taboo word here, but even the whole abortion debate. It's exactly about like abortion. Like open yeah. and close, but it's not. Exactly. It's so much more nuanced than that. Yeah. And you can't think on, on either side of that issue. I, I think it's a mistake to go extremely to one side or the other um, and and insist that you're right. And that, that, and that any kind of rule that you make is going to fit every circumstance and every... Every story, it's not. It's not. As complex as humans are, which, yeah. And yeah, so I'm outspoken on a lot of these subjects. And I know I've horrified a lot of ex-members about my political and moral stance. <laughs> you're, you're the cautionary tale that young <laughs> Church <laughs> of God much. kids are, are told, you'll become like, you'll become a friend of or the gays. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's, yeah, like I've carefully thought out the ethical implications of all of this. And mm-hmm. so if I'm passionate about abortion rights, it's because there's significant ethical implications for not having them. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's really horrifying for people who are used to a black and white worldview, but I guess I'm comfortable with the gray now and with the questions. It takes the a long time to get there. It does. It takes a long it's, time to get there. It changes you. As I was saying, what was it yesterday with the whole, is my brain that different or have they gone that weird? And I think probably the larger part of the calculation is that my brain is different. I just don't think the same way anymore at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And I have to continue to think that it's objectively better because I, I, I genuinely do when I when I consume COG content, and I I get back into that mind frame and I watch the thinking and the explanations. I can't square it. No, it doesn't, and it's harmful. It's uh, it's objectively causing harm to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I have that's, to agree with that. That's kind of yeah. I know the way my brain works, the way my belief system is now horrifies people. Then. But I have to think that I'm a better person. I'm kinder, more compassionate. Mm. Yeah. I care more about people, maybe. Care about people's well-being. Yeah. And I think it also, um, speaking of rights, it it honors your right to make those choices. That's one of the things that really irks me, kind of motivates me to talk about this or want to talk to COG people is because you can choose to wear a vest. You can choose to stay a virgin. You can choose mm-hmm. not to have an abortion. You know, you can choose to worship Jehovah. But you need to choose that. And you shouldn't let people coerce you into making the choices that are right for them or that they think are right yeah. for you. That is the main thing. If the Church of God was a culture that just enjoyed hymns and didn't care about television um i wouldn't have any beef with that i'd probably visit and respect if they were all doing it without fear yep and i know i don't know if you saw the post in the discussion group today but i did yeah 
Okay. So yeah, talking about the fear of hell. And for me, just if you are being held in anything by any sort of fear, it's ineffective. Why? It's not, yeah, not even just ineffective. It's harmful because you should be making the decisions you are out of your own yeah. free will. It's a, viola- mm-hmm. it's a violation yeah. of your, of your right as an autonomous little being. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it shouldn't be, uh, churches shouldn't be holding people by fear. They should be holding them by what they have to offer, but they don't. Yes. It's- it should be a free market. We're all, we're all capitalists yeah. here. We can do what we want. We all like democracy. You know, and that's an interesting thing. Free speech, democracy, all of those, all of those liberal, um, you know, enlightenment virtues. Mm -hmm. They're antithetical, I think, to the structure of the church. To to think that the universe is a monarchy. Yeah. But that democracy is the best form of government for us. It's made their whole jumping on the pandemic wagon such a yeah weird... because they do <laughs> they do really get on like the rights in the what do you guys call your constitution the charter um, the charter of rights and freedoms yeah, yeah the charter so they really have expressed that they believe in these in these enlightenment virtues they don't not in any way but anyways <laughs> they keep them separate like i want to exercise that in a civil sense but I will, mm-hmm. I will be a monarch over my little community. Yeah, and I will control. Tyrant. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms encompasses everything like sexuality and stuff like that too. Okay. But yeah, they're not going to allow that. Yeah, so how can you believe in both of those things at the same time? It's been the weirdest cause to see them take up. It doesn't matter. I never would have guessed that one, right? I, no. So... Uh, they're obviously going to lean right wing. Let's let's analyze this for a few minutes and just speculate. Yes. They're obviously going to yeah, lean right wing naturally because they're a church. Mm-hmm. Um, even though recently they've they've, I, I think backtracked on that right, like wanted to get liberal people or made fun of people that yes. wear red hats. I've heard that, and so they, they don't want to join the Republican Party or conservatives. But they were going to rallies. They were going to rallies. They went to Trump rallies. They've been. They went to Trump rallies, and here in Canada, they were backing PPC candidates, which is the equivalent of Trump. They also went to Black Lives Matter rallies, which confused people so much when they started. (laughs) Because in the one article I had written, one of the questions is like, "Why are they doing the anti-pandemic thing, and yet they're at Black Lives Matters? How does this work?" So, first of all, respect because. I respect anyone that isn't just kind of taking a party lines like, oh, I'm going to take my cues from the people that um, believe one thing like me. I guess I'll just accept the whole package of beliefs. So that's cool. Um, However, it's a strange combination of things. But is it actually about, I mean, now with Steve's new thing of racism, I suppose that's a, traditionally liberal value although the way he's taking it isn't at all like it's not going the way of any anti-racism any civil rights activists that i know it's like malcolm x i think he he, his idol is malcolm x um (laughs) like they just made a montage of him speaking in malcolm x opposite you saw that um that was a church made church posted at least thing Malcolm X was a racist. 
for most of his career, when he was with the Nation of Islam, the white man was the devil. And, and he was a separationist. He was believed in black nationalism, which means we want to take black people back to Africa and make our own nation. And I'm not just going to hate a white person or think they're less than me. Oh, I do want to be separate I hadn't from followed them. Him that I want to live separately so from them. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was basically my understanding of his tenets when he was preaching for the Nation of Islam. Now, in the end of his life, okay. he he parted from that cult and um, and had some awakenings himself about race and things like that and changed his mind a little bit. Now, Steve's somewhere on that spectrum. There's something cool about Malcolm X who puts down, who's willing okay. to go toe-to-toe with the white man. And there's something cool about that. Malcolm X is a cool guy, and you listen to him, and he was a badass and very smart, et cetera. And, and Steve really admires that. And so there's something there emulating Malcolm X. There's also, I think about Paul. Paul has this line where he says, because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Okay. To a person with a hammer, everything's a nail. And sometimes yeah. people get banner issues. Henry Hildebrandt has the pandemic because he got a little famous for it. He went viral and he got a lot of endorphins and like he got a huge congregation because of that for a couple of years. Briefly. Briefly. Yes. <laughs> Herbert loves politics. Steve has grown up, he grew up, you know, in Ohio. And I'm sure that he has a lot of experiences that are fascinating and framed his story that I don't understand that caused this to be for him the way that he views the world. It's the glasses through which he sees the world. But what's important and what we've come back to in this conversation a lot is the way you see the world is based upon a lot of your experiences and your biases and things like that. And there are a lot of ways to see the world. And racism isn't the root of all evil, as he said this week. No, or the oppression of women and children. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, like is if I rape a white woman... How is that a race? But but you see the world through your lens. Yeah, I guess that's... And the church has a few different people pulling those strings, uh, influences, you know? Mm -hmm. Steve's doing the racism thing. That's not really Ray's burden. Nor is the pandemic Ray's thing. No, but he likes the conspiracy theories of the pandemic. Yeah, he gets caught up in it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He gets but caught the up pandemic in it. Was Henry's baby. Pardon me. The the pandemic was Henry's baby. That was his passion. That was his main thing. It's all Henry preached about. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm exaggerating, but not much. It's all <laughs> that he preached about. Maybe I don't listen much anymore. But during the pandemic, I only heard Ray mention those kind of politics a couple times. So there's he did a f- pull the whole Bill Gates and the vaccine is poison, and Bill Gates is going to take your money. Yeah. He did jump up. I mean, they're they're trying to fight a lot of fronts, and that's what happens when you're the rulers of the whole world. You've got to sort of have a a, a lot of fronts. Keep, well, and because none of these fronts are actually resulting in any of the or yeah, what they the want, masses. which is the million, which we know is not going to the happen. Masses. Are you going to eat your words? <laughs> I have this on tape now, and the masses flow in. <laughs> there we go. So I can be a false prophet. Yeah, I'm willing to stay quite a bit on the fact that I'm not going to be one. <laughs> you don't think. You don't think this is going to be a popular, it's going to explode, huh? No. It's just not attractive for so many reasons. You have to be born in it to to make either that or have some severe emotional or spiritual need that draws you to it. 
but I mean, Christianity itself is already a dying market. The church is shrinking in yeah. rapid numbers. That is true. And what is popular is your mega churches right now. They are the ones actually growing. Because it's a softer message. It's, yeah, it's softer more and more. You don't have to change your clothes and you don't have to follow rules. There is no market for a group like that. There just isn't, this isn't the kind of group, so with something like the pandemic where there's a massive upheaval and people were disgruntled with the government and what was happening and were scared and anxious, mm -hmm. a message like Henry was presenting was attractive for people like that. Because he wasn't presenting the message that is the message that the COG the presents. No. The, the Salvation COG is, honor the apostles and thou shalt be saved. And he tried to filter that in later, but the message was yes. anti-government, stupid yeah. police, let's fight this and we're going to run out of food. Don't and tread on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't tell exactly. me not to go to church. And heck, you know, I don't have a lot of problem with that message. I know you and I differ on that, but um, <laughs> that's why those people were there. They were supporting a, yeah. what they thought was a fellow Christian. Yeah, um, and even there was some churches that stepped up alongside them as well, mm -hmm. and I think all those churches have publicly stepped out against them. Once yeah, they realized what they didn't know about. what they were getting into. Perfectly yeah. fair, because I I thought it was disingenuous of Henry to offer the hand of fellowship to those oh, people absolutely. during the pandemic, and and not be more transparent about what he thinks of them. He he didn't believe those people were saved or no, no. his brothers, but. He he wanted numbers, he wanted support, and that's what it was about at the point. Yeah, I don't know why they thought that they would keep them. I think they hoped that they that this was enough of a hook that they could rope them in and then convince them to get saved and convince them to buy the apostle message. And what a long slog, isn't it, to, to keep on getting yourself oh. amped up for the end times. <laughs> exhausting i feel so bad for them when i watch them get excited about it well it's pretty interesting to watch how they how they innovate over time and and do keep the excitement i mean heck i'm a viewer you know this is mm -hmm. season season 25 i i still tune in <laughs> <laughs> there's something about it that is compelling what was it season 21 season 22 <laughs> but I just remember, though, because Ray had actually put down a date when the whole Bill Gates would take your money and then the masses would flow in because you know, oh, can't get food I never heard breath. a date. It was, I think it was supposed to be by spring, maybe two years ago. I forget. It was some. It was during the pandemic. Okay. But he had said at the Oklahoma meeting, he had said by spring, it's all going to have happened, basically. I remember Oklahoma when he was telling people, all it takes is a push of a button and your money's all gone. You know, real Which scary was, stuff. And when you're in the pandemic, pandemic was scary. It was. It was, it was scary. Terrible. It was and the end of the world. Yeah. I mean, it upheav It was an upheaval for everybody. Yeah. But if you're already in the anti-government mindset and thinking that you're going to be persecuted and people are going to whatever, then, yeah, it's easy to think that this is now the end of life as you know it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then if your apostle is telling you, you know, put that money at the apostle's feet. Because it's it's time before before it gets before taken they from take you. it from you. I mean, so now what? Do the people feel cheated? I would. I would. I I know a couple people that do. You know that it was so again. It was so hard to listen to Steve at, with the extortion preaching because 
He's talking to a group of people who gave a bunch of money, turned in their no. businesses, and like you thought, the Global Brethren, the organization that, that 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 they made to kind of like a business organization to conglomerate some of the church-owned businesses. People turned in money and deeds, and I think, and I I don't know exactly, but they turned in stuff mm-hmm. to that organization, thinking it was. Going to be the new economy. Going to be the new economy, and that that that, and and they did that in response to, if not direct, you know, he says, you know, I didn't tell you to do that. None of us told you to do that. You got you kind of made that up yourself, but not no. out of context, not totally out of context. And then, I don't know. It just felt so insensitive to those people that had given up stuff. And I know they're really struggling, but what can they do? If struggling. You say no. You- with, uh, with, with the concept ha- with the concept of having to give up so much or just the whole don't you dare reinvest in your business again it's a matter of autonomy i mean a, a, i had two red flags when i was there i was like i know this is weird what i'm doing i know what this looks like i live on a compound in a foreign country i dress funny um i had two triggers if they asked for my money and if they mm-hmm. wanted to share wives uh-huh. To me, it was like when I hear that happen, then I'm. That's my red flags. That's my that's my line so in the you sand. Do you think me? you would have left then? if you had stuck around till the last few years? Would you have left? Well, with the money. Yeah, I think I. I can say I would have left a long time before because I did leave a long time before <laughs> because I think what I left over, you know, I've talked about sort of the the age of the earth stuff, but another major factor for me was the fact that the apostles ray was saying that he could like make morals you know if he says you can't wear sandals right god agrees and that's just not true that's not where morals come from like we we talked about that and i never thought that and you can't tell me to murder someone and say it's okay um so this is that was a seed of where we're at now where if you didn't leave then, but would you leave now if you had put up with, because they dropped yeah. so many years leading up to it. And so what you're saying is like people that are invested, they're throwing good money after bad. They're pretty much, I know, think for a lot walk, of them, walking did. away from a they're, lot more. I mean, my parents complained about the money that they gave the church and never saw, never saw anything from it. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, compared to what people now are doing, that was nothing. But people are giving hundreds of thousands now, giving know, everything, and they're they close are. to retirement age. What? And you have to hope that the church is going to take care of you. They're not gonna, but you have to hope. I do not believe it for a minute, and especially, again, it's just another means too of being entrapped by them. Yeah. What if they did give Absolutely. you a pension and they owned your house? How are you going to leave? How are you ever going to make a free choice? Much less, you know, the fact that they've got your family and they're willing perfectly willing to not let you see that family if you piss them off yeah and if you've got kids that are now married in there and entrenched in maybe one of the big families absolutely i don't know i feel for some of these people because uh, i can see too. in their faces trapped but they're trapped which, again i think all my lucky stars all the deities that ever did or didn't exist Amen. that i got it when i was single because yeah, I just run these scenarios where I'm still there, and I don't think I would be alive if I if I was still there now. All right, so pretend even... pretend you are there now. Let's pretend you're talking to some listener who's trapped there. But what do you do? What would you do with all the wisdom you have? 
all the knowledge you have about the beautiful outside world, what's a, what's a person like that to do? It's so hard. I mean, with the knowledge that I have, it's like leave, cut your losses and leave. Would you, would you do that? Would you advise that? I would. I think I would too. Because no matter how horrible, and again, the first few years are going to be hell. Right. And if you leave family there, yeah, you're going to lose contact with some of them for sure. Depending on how you're going to lose a lot, you've lost your money, you might walk away from your relationship. But is it really worth sitting there just waiting to die and being miserable? And even considering if you lose all that, at least you have hope for life, for some sort of a future, even if you've poured 30 years into that place. It is so hard to know because I I would live with the devil himself if I could be with my kids. I'm trying to imagine a guy like me, but just wrapped up in it still. I was there, you know, I had kids, I had a wife. I was afraid of that. But Mm -hmm. I felt felt that I couldn't do other than be honest. Ironically, because, you know, the very thing I was accused of not being Uh (laughs) when I left was honest. But that was the reason that you take all those risks was because you you have to believe that doing the truth is your best pathway to uh It is. And I think life. it's a matter of living with your conscience. And I yeah. yeah, I don't think I'd be able to live with my conscience if I realized that what I was in is wrong. And you And can, even if I'm staying in there for my husband or my children, it's going to eat me alive. Yeah. You know what I would be willing to do though is play ball. Um and, I, I don't like that you have to, but there are successful cases of people that leave conscientiously and um, stay with the family and still go to the picnics and can attend service and weddings and stuff because the only thing the church doesn't want you to do is go out there and, and be a loud yeah. mouth. Yeah. Um, They'll put critical. up with you if you don't bad talk. And mm-hmm. yeah, if your family, if staying with your family is important, then yeah, that's yeah. what you have to do. That's probably what I'd do. I think it would still eat me. God, because yeah, your kids are being taught yeah everything that's yeah taught. oh it's and i've talked to people who are in that so kind of a situation so and hard. it's hard for them yeah. to see their kids i know and i mean i've run different scenarios too what because i know who i was back then and i was dedicated and i was loyal but i think given a few years i would have seen through the curtain yeah and i've run the scenarios where i'm married to a dedicated man and have children mm-hmm now what do I, because I know that if I walk away, they'll do everything they can to paint me as an unfit mother yeah. and to keep the custody. So am I willing to walk away from my children? And I know women in situations like this have done that, have walked away from everything just to save themselves. And I don't know if I could, I don't know that I could leave my children and it would eat me alive to see them being raised there, knowing how much they were going to suffer now mm-hmm. in the way that I suffered. It's very upsetting to me that the church makes it so hard. I mean, that may be the really? yeah. that, that may be the main thing because leaving is so hard and it just doesn't have to be. They don't, I don't know why they I mean, I know some of them say, "Well, if you don't want to just leave, we're not stopping you, nothing's stopping you." Yeah, but you're going to make my life a living hell if I yeah. do. Yeah. I everything changes, you know. Yeah. Especially if you have I lose my community. Any family. Yeah. Any family. Um, I don't know. What do you think of, do you think that there's a, that, that there's a way that the church might ever change on that? 
might come to get to know some outsiders. I mean, you and I both have friends that are still in. Takes a lot of years to kind of rekindle those friendships, but there's there's some <laughs> twenty years, in my case. Yeah, but there Anyways, are some yeah. threads there that remain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, enough. I could be legit friends with Pat Junior, for example. You know, mm-hmm. um, I could be buddies with that guy. Um, do you think that there's a way that the church at large? would ever let down those walls, get to know people like us? No. No. <laughs> because that's when things fall apart. <laughs> it's too threatening? Because, I'm sorry? It's too threatening to their existence and worldview? Because many people there are saying, where would I go if I were to leave? They don't think yeah. there is anywhere to go. So if they get to know people like us and find out that we've made a good go of our lives and that we're okay whatever the path we've chosen to take, whether it's religion or not or whatever, then you are going to lose most of your people. Maybe a few will stay around for loyalty and just because, but I really see this being held together by a bunch of strings of terror of hell and fear and threats and all kinds of stuff. And if you cut any one of those, the whole thing implodes. And And that's why they're tighter and tighter on control. Yeah, I agree with you. And evidence of that is if you, tune in and start to just imbibe the culture. That's the culture. If you listen in to the preaching, that's what it is. It's fear mongering and threats and insistence upon, upon obedience and honor Mm -hmm. for apostles and for the hierarchy. And it's like, uh, the only reason the hierarchy exists is to support the hierarchy. It doesn't even have a function anymore of making life beautiful or, you know, I I would love, I asked for, asked a couple times i would love to do an episode of just testimonies to hear people that are inside and the church can curate these mm-hmm. give their testimonies of why they love it because i forget that and i think in the same way that that the church makes caricatures of those outside those outside can make caricatures of those inside and it it does just seem that way to me i'm i'm with you like that's my take as well and i and even but I mean, like, so yeah, we can say that they're caricatures. But then when I look back at myself and I look back at the pictures of me as a 15, 16 year old mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the eyes that I see just, they haunt me. I just look at these pictures. I'm like, why did nobody see this? How could nobody see that this child was dying? Because I've got a beautiful smile. My mm-hmm. smile is just, yeah, it's gorgeous. And people always called me sunshine in the church. But that smile never reaches my eyes. And that's not your what you told me today. You you hated that end period of being in the church. You know, you used a lot of language that was life was I hell and stuff. Though. If you had asked me then, mm. I would have told you, I am so happy to be in the church of God. This is the best place to be. This is, I love, oh, I'm suffering. Sure, I'm suffering, but this is a good thing because God is mm. refining me. But I would never have admitted to myself that I was unhappy, that I was uh, suffering. So you were unhappy, but you didn't really even know it because there was such a powerful story around the unhappiness that actually unhappiness is actually happiness. Yes. And I mean, anybody who knew me in those last years, yeah, they say I was sunshine. I was sparkly. I was bubbly. I was happy. So I put on a really, and I think if I look back at how I felt, I felt that I, it's my personality though, too, I think, but I could put that on. I could be happy. I didn't look oppressed. Yeah. That happens like Robin Williams. I did. Sorry? 
I mean, it makes me think of Robin Williams, you know, just because somebody's yeah. happy outside doesn't mean that they're well inside. And even if you look at his eyes in retrospect, yeah. Retrospect, was... yeah. And if I look at my eyes, and if I look at the eyes of anybody that's there, the eyes look heavy and dark and sad. And it's actually one of my favorite things as I watch backsliders as they start to adjust to life. Mm. You can see the eyes, they're still dark. The smile doesn't quite reach where it needs to. And then as the months and the years progress and the heaviness starts lifting, you start mm. seeing their eyes light up and you see the spark. And I think that's my favorite part when I start seeing that spark. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I've thought of the church... Well, it's hard for me to know in this sense because my experience there, I was sort of at the top of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, such a different thing for me than than other people experienced. So, yeah. you know, y- your testimony, listening to Henry talk in the same way, you know? Um, the kids suffer, I think, the worst. It's heavy. It's the kids, the ones that, because both Henry and I got in when we were around 10. Yeah. It's when you spend your youth and your childhood that just sucks okay. everything up. And I can't imagine the ones even younger. It must be even hard. It's a lot. It's a heavy, it's a heavy worldview. It's a heavy worldview. It is. And it's, I still have anger sometimes at what was stolen, what I could have been. Sure. If I hadn't. Even as something as simple as being at a party and talking about the crazy things you did in your teenage years. And I'm like, mm. yeah, got nothing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> craziest thing was I went sleepwalking in the Cayman Islands because I'd been awake for 48 hours. That was the craziest <laughs> young person experience. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Even as, you know, I've struggled on the other side with um, nihilism, for example, you know, as a result of atheism. Um, or, you know, feeling adrift, uh, even with those struggles, I think it's heavier to be in, it's heavier to be carrying the burden of the guilt, the, the, the responsibility of behaving perfectly. My goodness. (laughs) My goodness. It's. Yeah, and I've had several people tell me this. Even my worst day out here is better than my best day in the church. Mm. Which, And we know full well how hard those first few years are, but at least yeah. you've got the freedom. At least you can, you can see your way towards a better future once everything stops hurting as much as it does. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. It's, yeah, no struggle out here is ever as horrible or as hopeless as it was there. No, I would never, I would never trade my mindset now for my mindset then, or my ability to approach a problem or a social situation or anything. I, I mean, I don't know that I would gain a single thing from joining the church again. Can't imagine no. a single thing that is better in than out that I would gain. And, well, we saw this in the one group, the one young man who was wanting to go back because he misses a sense of love and community. Oh, right, right. I, it's hard to find. It is, I suppose, but which is why I really encourage people, once you leave, find people to plug into, find a community, find somebody. You can find because, it. Yeah, yeah. When, and so when I walked away from the church in general, when I finally finished deconstructing, I did lose some sense of community. 
but it's different walking away from evangelicalism than it is from walking away from a closed cult. I still kept a lot of my friends. I still had the people who were closest to me. And that always evolves too, as you mm-hmm. age, obviously. But yeah. you know, the sense of community I have, not only with the friends I've had for maybe 20 years, but also people in my community and others I get to know, it's not the same inbred in your face all the time. I'm your community permanently. And so I can be at your house every second day if I want to be type of thing. It's different. It's not the same closeness, but the community I've found outside is so much better and so much more accepting than what's there. And the best thing is I don't have to be around people. I don't want to be with because that was a thing that was captive community there. Even if these people hated you and made your life miserable, they were your brothers and sisters in Christ. So you better get along. Damn it. And now I get to choose the people that I'm around with. So, yeah, it's, I, yeah, I run all these different thought exercises and just what if and how and all this. And yeah, no, there's not no, a single no regrets. thing that I had stayed. No regrets. I think of the church, I think the church is afraid of all the things that we were afraid of when we left, you know, missing mm-hmm. community, becoming a homosexual you know, as, or whatever, getting into sin and doing things that will make you suffer and not realizing it and your heart being darkened. And I think that fear is what runs the whole church. We've said that, right? They're preaching yeah. fear. But I think that the church as an organization is afraid of the world. And so they put up the big walls. They they try to keep everybody safe, keep everybody in, keep, make, it, make sure everybody's behavior is really predictable so that nothing scary happens. Um, but the fear that they've, built is not actually built around reality either because what is the fear that they that you're going to go out and you're going to get pregnant and you're going to get into drugs or you're going to get drunk or you're going to have an accident while you're drunk and so that's all your options you're just basically going to go out and i don't know pretty much that's the life that they that's the horror story that they sell the young women that you leave and you get pregnant Mm -hmm. and like no first of all there's a thing called birth control Mm -hmm. and let's talk about safe sex but okay Mm -hmm. but no there's so much more that you can do outside of all of that you don't have to turn to drugs you don't have to turn to alcohol there's so much meaning so so many options that you can do you can go to university you can make friends you can so the Think of the analogy of like like a person getting into the ocean, let's say, or a swimming pool, and they're a little trepidatious about coming out into the water. And there are people out there swimming, having fun. The water's fine. That's the saying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the church almost, I wonder what you think of this theory, but they are beginning to engage with the world a little bit, forced upon them by the internet, etc. And they're curious. The reason they're watching movies is because leadership wants to watch movies. <laughs> yeah it isn't because they had a revelation or the holy ghost spoke to them in a dream or nothing like that is claimed they want to watch some movies i think it would be constructive mm-hmm. and edifying even if you want to put it in those words that they're palatable to them but they begin to dip their toe into the water of the world which brother danny was not willing to do because he'd been in the world yeah. and it was a scary place for him and these other guys haven't been out there in a long time or maybe remember parts of it fondly like country music. (laughs) So they begin to wade out there a little bit. And I guess I think I would love to coax them out (laughs) a little more in, in these friendly ways, you know, and say, Hey, the world's not scary. Look at me. I'm, I'm in the world and I'm a Mm -hmm. friendly guy. And 
you know, here's some ideas that you don't have to be afraid of from the world. Um, and I, I guess maybe that's what gives me the illusion that um, there may be changing. I think in a way that they would really not want to acknowledge, becoming worldly. I think they're edging. They're softening. Yeah, for sure. That's scary because that means you have to let go of a worldview you've held on to. Exactly. You've got to let go of the edge of the pool. Yeah. And and, you and have to venture dive. into something new. And the thing is, you haven't been taught to swim. So you might sink exactly. and you might flounder a bit and mm-hmm. you're going to mess up. You're going to swallow a bunch of water. But eventually, yeah. figure it out. And then you're out here, you know. Having fun. Having fun. But don't let that swallowing the water or floundering, don't let that scare you either. Right. right. Because I think that's what sent a lot of people back into the church. It's like, oh, yeah, it is as bad as they said it was. Sure. <laughs> sure. And I, again, to use, to use the analogy, the church has set you up for that by never teaching you to swim, yeah. by never teaching you to make uh, autonomous decisions or exactly. think critically or um, interact with, with the world. And it is really, it's a foreign society that you're going into. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different culture. Sure, it's a whole different it culture. I cringe when I think of some of the first things I did. It was super embarrassing. But it's a part of it. You just kind of have to go through that stage and you have to figure out who you are. And eventually it'll make sense, but it's terrifying in the meanwhile. Yeah. Do, do, you, uh, do you feel done with that process? Not I'm mostly, I think. I mean, is anybody ever done with anything? I think not. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I think not. But I, ex- no, I, feel I like thought I would be. I thought I would. I thought in three years in, I was like, oh, good. That's behind me. I'm back to normal. Yeah, and I get that. And I think that's another thing that needs to be addressed. I see that a lot. Like, I tell people that it's going to be years before you're going to be really okay. And they don't like hearing that. And I did not like hearing that. I remember somebody yeah. telling me that the amount of time that you were in a cult is the amount of time it's going to take for you to heal. Okay. And for me, that was nine years. And I'm like, no, here I'm what a 20 year old eight, or even 18 or 19. And I'm like, I don't want it to take that long. I just imagine myself going through all this pain until I'm actually ready to start living life. And I think that's important to understand too. That doesn't stop you from living life. When I look at right. those early years, those were some of the richest, some of the best, most meaningful ones. But it's also when I was doing the heaviest healing. Yep. So, yeah. And for me, when I reached that nine, 10 year mark, yeah, there was a distinct difference where it no longer really consumed my life in any way. Yeah. I, I guess that's of, a good yeah. metric because I, I think I'm, but I, I, I do from time to time. Um, think that I'm this. Coming toward a settled place. With and then something happens and you're not. Yeah, and then something changes. And then, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's a part of life that we're life. always changing. And it's, that's why. It has nothing to do with the cult. Right. And even when you look back on your time there, like you said, never had certain experiences, et cetera, that's life. You know, that's okay. You can't live every yeah. life, you just live no. your life. I did, and it's weird, but it is what it is. It is, and all in all, not bad. 
And I always say that I'm lucky that I got out when I did because I was still able to be a young adult and do young adult things. And I was able to go to college and I was able to select my mate and date and do all that fun stuff and not be restricted to 10 minute phone calls. Yep. And you didn't have, you know, the kids that you're deprogramming with. I know that's one of the hurtful things that people that are out now are like, man, I raised my kids all weird and, you know, they've got issues because of it. Yeah, the guilt and the struggle now to help your kids adjust to a world that is not, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I'm, when I look back at the split and I look at all those little different things, how it's, I'm just, yeah, so thankful that fate, karma, God, whatever it was that caused all that to happen. That it yep, and it's all going to be okay. It will. Yeah. I know it feels like it's not. And yeah, when I look back, because yeah, for me now, my life being what it is, it's hard for me to remember how hard. And so it's when I walk alongside people who are starting in those early days, it's just like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, that hurt. I remember how hard that was. Totally, totally. And, and uh... remembering the people who came. So I've had my little births and I actually just talked to somebody who had been there for me in the very early days. And I'm like, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I want you to know how much I appreciated what he did for me in those days. And I cry every time I do this, not because it hurts, but just because their love, their connection was so meaningful and so incredibly important in the healing process. Yeah. The world isn't that terrible. There are beautiful people out here. There's so many beautiful people out there so reach out for community outside find people to talk to yeah absolutely and yeah if you need to talk about the really weird things find expat or find other backsliders who understand yeah yeah but really there's so much love and goodness to be found out there yeah it is a neat world isn't it it is it is it's, yeah all in all pretty yeah, good it's true and again going back to your question of if you're tied in there with family and everything else and do you leave I still think the answer is yes, just because of the possibility of goodness. Yep. And hopefully, hopefully you can leave in a way that's diplomatic. I I wouldn't leave and make a big stink. No, don't build Facebook groups that talking. Yeah. They don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't start podcasts. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Gloria. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Have a great night. Night.